Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Next Level. I'm JVL here with my best friends, Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller of The Bulwark. Guys, Donald Trump. But dum bum 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 the New York legal system really working in our favor right now. Law and order is here. Sam Waterston went and got his guy. No, I mean not really. That's not what happened. But there were consequences. Oh, is that what that was? The law and order theme? Yes, that was the law and order theme. Bum 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 bum. No, was that not good? Did I not do it well? Well, I didn't pick it up, and it's a highly recognizable theme song. But it's fine, no matter. I love the smell of accountability in the morning. Donald Trump has suffered some consequences for the first time since he I got gonorrhea as a college student. Uh, and he, uh, a, a jury took three hours. That seems to be quite quick, by the way, by the standards by which juries operate. Yeah, but the jury was woke socialist. They had like a charging document with, you know, very complicated details about how to think of different aspects of the case. And they came back and they found $5 million worth of damages for both sexual battery, sexual assault, and defamation against the former president of these United States. I mean, let's just start with how this made you feel, Tim. It made me feel all warm and fuzzy. And just to get little George Santos Lanyap, thank you to New Orleans listeners who corrected me. Like JVL, I'm just, I'm starting to accustom myself to my new culture. I apparently pronounced out a little too Frenchy and not enough Southern last week. A little Lanyap from George Santos. It made me feel really great. There's some mixed feelings on the inside, which I want to get to next, but I just want to focus first on the positive. Good on E. Jean Carroll for doing this. Obviously, she was subjecting herself to unbelievable amounts of scrutiny and vitriol to try to do the, oh, this happened 30 years ago thing. It took a lot of gumption to do that. And I'm happy that she did. I'm happy for her. Happy for my friend, Robbie Kaplan, who is her lawyer, who absolutely sunned Donald Trump in that deposition. Her deposition video versus Donald Trump was so great. If people haven't had a chance to watch it, they absolutely should, where she basically gets him to admit that he liked sexually assaulting people. That probably didn't help him, I don't think, in the jury deliberations. So that made me very happy. Donald Trump's consequences make me feel happy. You don't think that when he said it was fortunate that powerful people used people to do whatever they wanted, that that played well with the jury? Fortunately or unfortunately. He didn't take a side. He said it could be fortunate or it could be unfortunate that famous people. No, no. He said unfortunately first. And then said, or fortunately. Or fortunately. <laughs> fortunately for me, maybe. Unfortunately for the women, but fortunately for me, stars can grab pussies whenever they want. So great job by Robbie. And I think we can get into all the political stuff. You know, I was doing a radio show yesterday where they're like, well, this doesn't mean Donald Trump's going down. And I'm like, okay, well, if our bar for happiness and success is the complete decimation of Donald Trump in this political project, well, we're never going to be happy. So we might as well enjoy the small battle victories. And this was one. Sarah, I have a question for you. The Republicans are the party of law and order. They say it all the time. They want to defund the FBI, uh, etc. Marco Rubio, his comment yesterday was that this jury is a joke. I saw that. So not a lot of respect for the legal process or the justice system. Or the jury. Or the jury. Thoughts? Has Marco met the jury? Did Joe Perticone get a follow-up? That was what confused me. Uh, you know, Joe Perticone did get that, didn't he? In the halls of Congress. Yeah, that, that was a Bulwark exclusive. If you guys aren't uh, signed up for the Bulwark newsletters, you can get this stuff for free. Go to thebulwark.com and get it. Yeah, the state of New York does not like Donald Trump. It's almost like they know him, like he lived there for a while. Can I just start with saying 
that JVL, you and I talked about this on the secret podcast. I was not sure, I don't think either of us were sure that the E. Jean Carroll case was going to produce much in the way of news or results or accountability. But this is the first time there's been like an actual judgment against Trump, right? This is a civil case. So he's found liable as opposed to guilty. But he does have to pay her money. And that's a real thing. I am a little surprised. And I guess I don't quite know how I feel about the ability to bring a case 20 some years later. Like I do have some complicated feelings about that. Lots of, um, you know, memories are thin at that point. But the thing is, is the reason that I suspect they found him guilty is for the reason that you just said. The deposition revealed Trump to be the person that we know him to be, but it was like, you know, an extra special level of vile. What he says in that deposition is he says, for the last million years, unfortunately or fortunately, stars have been able to do this. And what's interesting about that is that it went from, this is locker room talk, which was how well, he described the Access Hollywood game, to canon, to an absolute truth that has been around <laughs> for millennia. Just the birds and the bees. Biblical. Facts of life. This is just how things work. My guess is that five million, that judgment, is actually just a jury being like, you're a disgusting, despicable human being, <laughs> and I have no doubt that you did something bad here because of the way you're talking about this. And there was sort of a great moment where... He kept saying, because he's the most disgusting person ever, that he couldn't have sexually assaulted her because she is not his type. And so at one point, he's shown a picture of E. Jean Carroll, who he then says, well, that's Marla Maples, my wife. That's a woman he had married. And so he confuses them. So this woman who is not his type apparently looks identical enough to a woman that he married for him to confuse them, uh, which is just crazy. So anyway, I think that the judgment is really just against... Trump for being, and, and I'm not sure, I have like some sort of some complicated feelings about that. Is it? it really is something, just can we just rest on that for a second? Because people have used that analogy very quick in, you know, Twitter dunking settings, but like not recognizing a, tw and I know I'm significantly younger than Donald Trump, but it would be like, I find it very hard to imagine that somebody would show me a picture of Tyler from when we first started, or someone else from when we first started dating and me to be like, that's Tyler. And then like, no, that's Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody from Montana. <laughs> I'm like, what? I mean, I, I just—I think it speaks to to him losing his marbles, but also just the right. utter narcissism of this man. The, like, he he never really actually contemplated one of his many wives' like features in a detailed enough way. He never processed it in a detailed enough way to be able to like to tell her apart from just any other made-up line. If you haven't watched the deposition tapes, you should go. I, I think those are the things that sunk Donald Trump more than the specifics of the allegation. I mean, it does seem to me, we had talked, right, about how one of the things that when he was president, the White House counsels tried to do was prevent him from ever testifying for anything, right? And there was, there was even a moment in one of the many reports about this mm -hmm. where one of the White House lawyers uh, is quoted by somebody else as saying, you cannot let him testify because he will simply lie under oath without even, you know, knowing that he's doing it. Or tell the truth under oath. Or tell the truth under oath. Both are bad for him. And th this deposition shows that this guy can never be put under oath and sworn in to testify, right? And every lawyer going forward has to know that you cannot Ugh, right. I mean, in the Alvin Bragg case, in, in, in any any other cases that are to follow, Trump can't be allowed to testify. Yeah. I do wonder what this does for his ability to get 
future legal representation? I mean, if you're Joe Tapioca, you come out of this thinking, thank God I got away with my my life and like some shred of my reputation. Is another competent lawyer going to want to take that risk? Yeah, do you think Joey T is back on the payroll for one of these other cases after that L? Would he be willing to? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, he quit his job to take this job. So Good Lord. I think probably, probably needs a client. So the, the last thing I want to get is to though, the... The judge instructing the jurors, you know, look, I can't tell you what to do because you're all grown ass adults. But if my strong suggestion would be don't tell anybody that you were on this jury, which I think is sensible advice. Wow. And also is a statement about where we are as a country, which is a problem, maybe. No. And also speaks to the Marco thing that the Joe asked him about yesterday. He's just blindly condemning a group of people based on like their residence in New York City, I guess. Right. Like I just it's not like the situation with the woman in Georgia who was out there on the interview circuit who was on the grand jury. It's not like it's been one of those situations where, you know, all these people and can have been able to render a verdict on their you know, humanity. I mean, it's just like it, it is again to our asymmetry, like the notion that Chris Murphy, you know, would be like, well, you can't trust a jury in Alabama. All those yokels, you know, like it would just be filleted, right, for days. How was, dare he hewn the reputation of the intellectual, the great minds of Alabama? How dare this <laughs> elitist Democrat Marxist BLM sympathizer, right? That's what we would get. Yeah, so that's part of it. The security part, I don't know that I have deep thoughts on it, but it is sad. It's true. It was sensible advice, but like... And this is the real world that we're in now in a week where we had, you know, a white nationalist mass murder at a mall. All right. So let's hit the political stuff. Sarah, this means he's finished now, right? <laughs> because Ron DeSantis is going to take dead aim at this stuff. Ronnie D is going to he is going to go to town on Trump. He's going to open a can of whoop ass and talk about how, look, a jury of his peers found that Donald Trump is liable for sexual assault. And how could we let this man be the, the standard bearer for our grand old party? Is that what's happening, Sarah? I got two things on this. One, we did a focus group last week of two-time oh. Trump voters, and we asked about the E. Jean Carroll case, and only one person had heard about it. Um, <laughs> I think that's important. And JBL, when you and I first talked about this, like, I remember I, you brought it up and I was like, I'm not actually following this that closely. To be clear, I'm sorry. Did you mean that they had heard of it or that they had followed the story? No, they hadn't heard of it. Didn't know what we we're talking about. Didn't know it existed. So I think that that's... Do the voice, Sarah. Do the voice. <laughs> guys. Hold on. This is important, though. This is a one of these media silo situations, right? It did look like Fox News eventually covered it a little bit yesterday. Like, they did the breaking news. This is happening. But, and then... Because Murdoch is kind of out together. But, like, people who are deeper in the ecosystem, and I don't know how much recrimination he really faced on Fox News. Uh, I did see Andy McCarthy seem to, you know, ding him a little bit. The question is, is, like, Fox is already right now, like, hemorrhaging viewers. And so how far are they willing to go on this? I don't think they're going to give it wall-to-wall -wall coverage. So maybe after the verdict, if I were going to do a group today, but, it, you know... Will people have heard of it now? Maybe more so. Maybe more so. But it's important to know, one, a lot of people hadn't heard about it, okay? Secondly, when we sort of said, hey, here's what's going on, you know, we heard a thing that we hear all the time, which is that voters really compartmentalize the moral depravities of Trump. It's not that they say, I don't care. These aren't bad. 
some of them say that. But for the most part, <laughs> people are like, you know, I don't like the tweeting, you know, his mouth or the way he treats women. I mean, you know, nobody says the rapey stuff, but they sort of like lump it all together, like the tweets and all uh, and they say, I don't like that, but I think he was a good president. I like how he handled the economy. I liked his, and they yeah. compartmentalize it, but they want to do the throat clearing, the moral throat clearing, so that you know that they don't think it's okay. And that's a certain bucket of voters. These are often DeSantis people, or like they're like, move on from Trumpers or maybe Trumpers. Then there's the always Trumpers and how they think about this, which is different. This is just them. Them being, I guess, libs, the media, Jeez. never Trumpers, the establishment, whoever. This is just them trying to get Trump because they know Trump can win oh. mm. and they're afraid of Trump. And that's why they love him. And you saw this in it's evidence of his strength. It's right. You saw this in Tommy Tuberville's tweet, right, where he says, this makes me want to vote for Trump twice. And there's a, a big group of voters who feel like that, who the more they come for Trump, the more evidence it is that Trump is their guy and the right person to punch back. Could we get Jeb to come out and defend Trump on the E. Jean Carroll stuff? <laughs> Poor Jeb alone. Maybe that would make a dent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the hadn't heard of it thing uh, relates to one of my uh, complaints about yesterday, one of my little rants I wanted to go on, which was who's responsible for them not having heard of it, right? Obviously in the Triangle of Doom. The media is part of it, conservative media, but the politicians and the leaders are partially part of it. And, and I was interested yesterday to see that on the Hill, Joe and others who are asking the senators about this. That's right. You got the senators who know better saying ish sort of the right things, right? John Thune was like, you know, this is, I think, a mark against him. I don't know. I can win. Kevin Kramer mm -hmm. ended up with two Dakota senators there. Uh, there's something in the water in the Dakotas, you know, said that there's a mark against him on the ledger, et cetera. And it wasn't, you know, they weren't railing against him. They weren't, you know, just getting on their moral high horse. But, you know, they were saying this is wrong. This isn't good. But here's the thing. It takes Joe Perdicone and Manu Raju and Garrett Hake asking them about this in order to say anything. And then their response is reported in The Bulwark and MSNBC and CNN. Right. And so I do think that this is the Republican elites just decade long failing now. Right. And I think that the people that you're talking about, Sarah, not the Tommy Tuberville crowd, but that first group that DeSantis absolutely needs if he wants to win or anyone would need if they wanted to be Trump in a primary like that group is movable. If these people were out there in their ears on the platforms that they listen to, that they watch saying this is bad. He's unelectable. A good person doesn't do this. It was, you know, wrong of him to what he said. And, you know, I don't know the specifics of this case, but there have been many accusers. And he said it live on tape that he likes grabbing people by the P word. Like if they were out there doing that, not just to Joe Perticone, but on The Daily Wire and in their conservative radio hits, like that could have a meaningful difference. It just doesn't raise the to, to that level for these guys. And I think that it's particularly cowardly because, you know, guys like John Thune and Kevin Kramer, they're not at threat. You know, it's not like they have this imminent threat of losing an election coming down over their head. You know, they're just being cautious. They've learned all the wrong lessons for the last seven years, and they refuse to do anything that might move the needle even a little bit against Donald Trump. Can I just tag onto this? Because this is my rant, yeah, too. And just to say that Republicans have agency here. 
that the only way that this has political consequences for Donald Trump is if Republicans decide that it needs to have political consequences for Donald Trump. And the fact that the elected officials, like, and they all kind of wimp out and do like, a, I don't think he's electable in the general thing because that's their safe space. Say he's morally deficient. Like, say what Mitt Romney says. If they all were saying that, if his rivals were hammering him, his 2024 rivals, but when they come to his defense, when they say things like, well, the jury's idiots or whatever, like, and I don't know if we've seen a, a statement by Nikki Haley or if they just choose silence. If they just choose silence, they become part of the permission structure to continue to vote for this guy again. And like this idea of like, it's the never Trumpers fault, it's the media's fault. No, no. And, and you know what? Yes, it's, it's Republican voters, but it's these Republican electeds. They have agency. They can make a news cycle that Republicans hear. If they want to, they choose not to. Can I tell you the funniest quote of the day? Yeah. I was pulling this up on the same point. Republican sources tell Bob Costa that they do not see this moment as the beginning of the political collapse of former President Donald Trump, but there is the possibility of a slow erosion of support. Mm, there is the possibility of a slow erosion. That possibility's out there. Now, I don't, I'm not going to do anything. In 14 or 15 months, he might be down to 55%. Yeah, who knows? That statement is like true in the, in the most narrow sense in that eventually Donald Trump's support will slightly erode. You would imagine he'll die or something will happen eventually that will make his support slightly erode. I just want to snap us back to 35,000 feet, though. My, my pal Bernie Belvedere mentioned this today. The idea that a guy who lost as an incumbent president by 7 million votes, who is impeached twice, who is under criminal indictment on 34 counts, who is just found liable for sexual assault, is at currently at 60% with a 40-point lead over the next guy in the most recent poll for the Republican nomination is insane. And is the kind of thing that if we were just sitting in 2015 and I had you know said to you, hey, this is going to happen, what would you like to bet that this is going to happen? You'd have been willing to bet your house on it. It's insane. The interesting thing about all that for me is, and I hate to do this, but, you know, we got to do this like one every 10 podcasts is, you know, not one of those guys has been like, you know, you guys are really right about this. <laughs> I would, I just like one really right. I was reading a Jim Garrity post the other day, just talking about how hopeless all of the mm. candidates he likes are. I was like, oh, if Asa Hutchison or Nikki's like, I like all these, but we need to be realistic. They need to drop out if they have to, because... It's just like at any point when you're typing that, when you're like, all the candidates I like are absolutely hopeless because none of my peers would even consider voting for them. Does the thought ever cross your brain that like, oh, maybe the party's gone rotten. <laughs> maybe it's bad and I should stop defending it all. How about Ross Douthat yesterday talking about how constrained <laughs> Trump will be in a second term? Oh, my God. Because he doesn't even really want to be there. Ross should be fired. This guy is a bad take machine. Thank you, Sarah. Sometimes JVL goes a little overboard on Ross. Sometimes. It's sometimes. You know, JVL has a bee in his bonnet, and I love you for it. But this tweet was the stupidest fucking tweet I've I think I've I, I think I've ever seen from a credible mainstream pundit. Who he was legitimately making the argument that he said that the most important VP selection in history was would be Donald Trump's VP selection. 
because that person would have power since Donald Trump doesn't. And I'm like, <laughs> the opposite. The least important vice presidential choice in history. Donald Trump, have you been awake? Like, you think it matters if Donald Trump picked who? I don't know, whoever Ross Douthat likes? Like, you think it would matter if he picked Rick Santorum? If he picks, like, some Catholic integralist, do you think that that would matter? What are you talking about? Do you think Ross's arms are, like, super tired from carrying the goalposts? How far he's got to carry them to justify? I thought Trump wasn't happening, Ross. I thought there wasn't going to be a coup, and then I thought we weren't going to like Trump anymore, and DeSantis was going to be great. Trump is weakening. Yeah. Now we're already picking his VP? Yeah. And we think that's going to matter? Now it's going to be yeah. okay, because Ross's new theory is that, like, well, Trump's going to die. Because that's the only way that yeah. anything good happens. He's saying he's got to die. Right. So it's about his VP. Or he'll check out. It's just like, were you not awake for John Kelly? Like, we did this. We did all this. Mike Pence, John Kelly, he's bringing in the adults, the Committee to Save America. Have, like, he tried to have his last vice president hanged. Well, He you tried know. to have his last vice president hanged. And you think the next one is going to kind of corral him? Yeah, don't be such an alarmist, Tim. Jesus Christ. All right. Speaking of uh, some polls, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is popping somewhere around 10 and 20 percent of the Democratic primary, which is fascinating to me. And I will ask you guys the question I posed to readers today. If Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was running in the Republican primary, what number do you think he'd be pulling right now? I think somewhere between 10 and 20 percent as well, but maybe higher. I don't know. I made this joke on Hacks on Tap yesterday. I just think if Robert Kennedy was running in the Republican primary, he'd be doing way better. Yeah, I don't think that's a joke, actually. No, it's not. Well, I mean, I made the joke, but it's, I think it's true. I think he'd be a legit contender in a Republican primary. And for people who are like, well, with the last name Kennedy, he wouldn't do good with Republicans. Are you kidding? With the last name <laughs> Trump, he did just fine. These former Democrats, like these Democrats who turn into anti-vaxxing conspiracy lunatics, the right loves those guys. The Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard, everyone thinks she should be Trump's VP. They love her. Better than Nikki Haley and Mike Pence. Oh, not even close. RFK, I think they'd all do great in a Republican primary. Yeah. RFK would be doubling that. Vivek Ramaswamy's currently tied with the vice president <laughs> of the United States, the last vice president, with a 100% name ID. Yeah, and what do people know about Vivek Ramaswamy? They're like, they know that he's some guy that goes on Fox that doesn't like woke people. Does not like the wokes. <laughs> it's literally all they know about him. I know the Kennedy thing is a boost. Again, this just shows that the old line pundit class, Mitch McConnell Republican establishment class, just is willfully ignorant to what is actually happening in their party. They do not listen to the media outlets that their voters listen to. They do not spend any time with the voters. This is true about all the contrarian substackers. God loves substack. That whole crowd, all of them, they live in liberal spaces. They live in elite big cities. The types of Republicans they know are not the types of Republicans in Sarah's focus group. The types of Republicans in Sarah's focus group have no interest in Nikki Haley, and they would be quite interested in Robert Kennedy because he's a Kennedy. Because the biggest driving motivation for them is that it's a troll. It's a troll of the left. It's like, oh man, we won over JFK's nephew. We got him on our side. Don't forget that in the QAnon mythology, John yeah. F. Kennedy Jr. is on Trump's side. Yeah, right. And coming back? He is still alive because he faked his own death. He's alive. I met him, actually, at CPAC. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> the person they think is JFK Jr. But just in brass tacks on the polling. I, I think that 
when we have been talking about could another person emerge, you know, as DeSantis goes down and, you know, all the normie pundits are like, well, you know, could Nikki get a boost or might, might Brian Kemp get in or whatever. No, Tulsi, RFK, those are the people that we're talking about. And I think that if RFK ran a serious campaign, like right now, if he jumped in, he might be at five or six because people aren't thinking about him as a Republican candidate. And they, like, but if he ran a serious campaign that was like, I love Mr. Trump, but he gave in a little too much to the deep state. And I'm very worried about the surveillance state. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm uh, and the vaccines and the vaccines. And he just focused the campaign on that and kind of ran from that angle, which nobody has against Trump. I think that person, whether that be Tulsi or RFK or somebody else, would be a strong third and maybe closing in on second, second. maybe closing in on second, second. right now. Yeah. yeah. But he is polling weirdly high in the Democratic primary. Yeah, I think there are two things at play here. I think that right now he is, I think that there's probably 5% of the Democratic base, maybe it's even 8%, that like, kind of likes us. You know, they're Chapo, Democratic lefties, it's the horseshoe, and they haven't yeah. jumped the horseshoe yet. Hell, maybe, maybe it's 12%. It's not 21%. We, we know that from other Democratic primaries, but maybe it's 12%. Then I think there's another category of people that is, I think, probably bigger than the first category or equal. That is, Joe Biden is old. And this person's last name is Kennedy. And I'm registering that I think it should be someone else besides Joe Biden. And you could put any yeah. name in there. You could put any name in there. Doesn't matter. And I would choose that person over Joe Biden because I'm registering my concerns about Joe Biden's age. I think that is why he's at 21% in the Democratic primary. So I think that that first group is a little bit concerning, but it's just such a rump. And I really would consider it to be like the equivalent of the never-Trumper of the Republican Party, just like a total rump, small portion of, of the Democratic base. Yeah. This is the problem, right? I mean, the problem is that those people have literally zero influence in the Democratic Party itself. Yeah. Whereas on the on the Republican side, the people who they are very comfortable with, the Alex Joneses, and th those people own the party. Yeah, run the party. They just own it outright. This is the other thing. People forget political ID is people can change their minds on issues, but they will hold on to their political ID till long after, right? That The yeah. political ID is the last thing to flip. And so there are a whole bunch of people who are, as you said, like anti-uniparty people who are, but that's what these people are. They aren't actual, you know, part of the Democratic Party structure. It's great. What's your take, Sarah? Do you assess my breakdown of his 21% accurately? I do, although I think you're right about the protest. I was also going to be like, there's just like a chunk of low info. Low info like Kennedy. this guy's last name's Kennedy. I don't know. Like, I still think Bobby's alive. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. It's out there. Did we just say enough about George Santos? I would like to say one thing about George Santos, I guess. Uh, Anthony DeVolder, Kitara Ravash. It's kind of sad that the first drag queen in Congress ends up being George Santos. Maybe there's something to those critiques of drag queens and their uh, moral turpitude. Um, it's really telling that Kevin's answer to this question is still, if he's found guilty, we'll push him out of the conference. I mean, I, I just think it just shows how ingrained, you know, the apologia is. It just happened. So I just glanced at it, but I think it was seven counts. I, it's it's wire fraud. It's like campaign violation. Defrauding the government. And that's just a start. He's also under investigation in Brazil. I hope that Lula and Biden are cooperating on this so that justice can be served to George Santos in two countries. But it is pretty telling that, again, like Mitt as moral conscience of the party is like the only one to say like the right thing to say, which is, OK, maybe we can't resign this guy, but at least you should go sit in the back and shame 
So that's my Anthony DeVolder hot take. I mostly just wanted to marinate in, in my happiness of bad things happening to bad people, which is, you know, as JBL says, the sweetest nectar. All right, Sarah, do you have anything before we hit that ceiling? Only uh, every member of Congress on the Republican side is very important to Kevin right now. He needs every single vote he can get. And when they go down, it makes this current debt ceiling fight even more interesting. Razor's edge. Speaking of this debt ceiling, and on this, just really quick, as we get as a transition to the debt ceiling, the Nancy Mace, do you see the Nancy Mace profile that the Times did? Only an excerpt. It was not quite as effusive as the Liz Holmes profile that the New York Times did, which was like, oh, my God. That I read. Yeah. I like literally that is insane. The person had a sentence in there that was like, uh, my editor told me that I was being snowed by Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, my God. And I don't think I am. And like they put that sentence in the, in the piece about being snowed by. Anyway, sorry. I got off track. I can't believe the Times would run something that the editor thinks. I mean, that to me is such malpractice. Yeah. Anyway, the, the Nancy Mace thing in the Times revealed just how tenuous this all is. Like her big shtick in this piece is that she's independent because there were all these things that she was pushing back on McCarthy on, but she ends up coming back on board on all of them, right? Because he can't afford, if you had a bigger majority, you could afford letting Nancy Mace like do some protest votes to show she's independent. But you can't do that because you can't trust any of the Matt Gates insane people on the right. So like you need Nancy on everything. And so Nancy is like, well, I'm going to criticize him and then vote for him. And he's going to give these kind of, oh, mysterious concessions. So I think that that, you know, speaks to the tenuousness of his position here at the debt ceiling. That said, are you surprised? I mean, I am surprised. He got that first yeah. vote through. And, and so, like, I would say, you know, we were all predicting that, like, the debt ceiling thing was going to be just a catastrophe for him. And so far, he's not, like, in a strong position, but he's not really in a weaker position than Biden. Like, they're both sort of equally weak going into this negotiation. And his conference stood behind yeah, him. I don't, I don't know. I think he's in a stronger position than Biden. And here's why. Your friend Ben Wittes, JBL's best friend Ben Wittes, did a really good analogy on this. I'm just going to completely ape it from him. And it is, if you're in a game of chicken... Okay. And you're both driving the car 80 miles an hour at each other and you're driving your car and you know that the other guy coming at you is making the calculation that like they are more likely to survive a head on collision with you than they are to survive if they wimp out. That's a very tough position to be in. And that's the position Biden's in because Kevin McCarthy looks at this and he's like, if I crash this economy, Maybe Biden takes the blame for that. Maybe Democrats take the blame for that. I don't. We'll see how it shakes out. I don't know. But if I cave to Biden, then I'm certainly going to be tarred and feathered by my own crazies. Okay. So in a weird way, Kevin is kind of in a stronger position, not, you know, at least with regards to the negotiations because of just the stakes, not that he's in a stronger political position. I think that's right. I have a question, a serious one. Yes. Are you cynical enough? Do you think Republicans are cynical enough? Is McCarthy cynical enough that he would risk the entire country's full faith and credit, right? I mean, no. you th there's like no doubt in your mind. Because I was talking to reporters about this, and I couldn't quite get myself to go there to say that I believed that McCarthy would tank the economy because Biden will take the blame, which, by the way, mm -hmm. Biden will take the blame. He is the president of the United States. Talk about people not knowing about the E. Jean Carroll thing. This process story only becomes vivid and real for voters when it has a personal consequence for them. And when they look up because their 401k has taken a massive hit or whatever, 
they're not going to be like, let me go back and read all the Punchbowl news articles about the brinksmanship on this. They're going to be like the president of the United States. Why did this happen? Uh, I'd go a step further, Sarah. They will react, even if it doesn't touch them personally, in the way that they have over the last two years, where even though unemployment has been at 4% and they're personally doing very well, and in the surveys they say that their life is great, they say that, you know, we're on the wrong track and things are terrible and this is... So I, I agree 100%. Yeah. Well, that's because rent is up 8%. Their rental yeah. is up 8%. Groceries are up 7%. And it is making a meaningful dent. I mean, the w futures are up right now because for Walmart because people who make over $100,000 have started shopping there to save on food. Yeah. Inflation's up 4.5% here, JVL. Come on. I'm agreeing with you. I'm just agreeing with you more enthusiastically, Sarah. I'm saying that they will absolutely blame Biden. Yeah. Someone said it with their own background. They think that, like, the market and, like, the normal republic closet normals are banking on like a tarp moment you remember when like the banks led to happen in oh it was 08 october it was 08 and they had this vote in congress they're like not going to bail them out and like they were going to let the banks clap and the stock market tanked yep. for a few hours and then like this prevailed and they're like okay we're just gonna too big gonna, to fail we're gonna reluctantly we're gonna do this I think that is what they're banking on happening. And I don't know. It's just a different Republican Congress. I don't know that a stock market tank over this would move them necessarily. On the other hand, I would like to ask, is it sustainable to live in a political dynamic in which the debt ceiling fight only happens when the president is a Democrat? Because Democrats didn't hold the American economy hostage when the debt ceiling was increased under Trump. Well, sure. What you mean by sustainable? Is that sustainable? Like, you know, hey, you Democrats have to understand that whenever you hold the presidency uh, and the debt ceiling comes up, you are going to be uh, held at the point of a gun because you're a responsible governing party and the other side isn't. Good luck. I'll answer that question a different way. I do think that that is a calculus that is factoring into the considering that the Biden administration, I think, seems like seriously considering they're just going to go out this solo and fight it out in the courts. Right. You know, I think them decides the 14th Amendment and says by executive order, you know, we can deal with this administratively and I'm not going to negotiate with the administration's going to do it. And you can just if you want. And, you know, we'll just we'll just see everybody in court and kick the can on this. I, I think that the legal experts, I don't know exactly what the run of show would be on that. But, you know, I saw Dan Pfeiffer was arguing that they do that. And I've seen a bunch of other prominent Democrats arguing that they do that. And I think that what you're saying, JBL, is factoring into that thought, right? Which is like, why are we doing this to ourselves? I think that has some other negative externalities, right? When it's like, oh, because the Republican old Democrats just get to act like monarchical now when we're in power. No, but on the other hand, there's a practical element here. Uh, I'll just register how much I'm against the 14th Amendment play and that what Biden should do, in my opinion, is negotiate with McCarthy, do what he said he was going to do as a I can work with Republicans all right, that was his, that's a big part of his pitch. And he should live up to that pitch right now. And he should go back and give McCarthy some kind of deal. They make some cuts. On the big, biggest, broadest question of are we spending too much, Republicans aren't exactly wrong. And then Biden should say, I'm going to work with Kevin McCarthy. We're going to hammer something out. And Kevin's going to have to go take that deal back to his guys. His guys who don't want to pass that deal. And give it back to him and let him go... Let those guys say, no, we are not going to raise the debt ceiling under any circumstances. OK, I think that he should do the right thing and jam McCarthy up. And I do not think he should do the 14th Amendment. And I think people who rationalize this stuff 
just like the court packing and everything else. It's like, well, because we're right and they're wrong. I think that's a bad way to govern. Uh, I think ultimately Biden is likely to do exactly what you suggest, Sarah. And yeah, uh, I, so. I then think he's unlikely to get any credit from voters. All right. Tucker Carlson has taken his talents to Twitter. Uh, what do you guys think? It's a big deal. Twitter is going to become a broadcast platform now that it's the X corporation. It's going to become the everything app. We're going to be doing payments on it probably. And also WhatsApp style communication probably. It seems to me that neither Tucker nor Elon understand all that much about platforms. And at best, maybe this winds up like Rumble and at worst it's Quibi. Yeah, I don't think that it's a winner at all. I think that Tony Ross and Post made a good point, which is like, the, the nice thing about being on cable is that terrestrial cable's view would be going down, but then you get all the bonus views of people clipping you on Twitter and all this. So work in reverse. If your show on Twitter, like Fox, who just fired you, isn't about to show you the show, the clips, and people would say really racist stuff for MSNBC to show it, so it limits your reach. I think Tucker incorrectly thinks that he's doing Twitter because if he went into the O'Reilly route, nobody will talk about him. I think he correctly sees that nobody talks about O'Reilly. So if I go to a streaming thing where you got to pay 10 bucks a month to get me, I'll get rich, but nobody will talk me. Okay, I, I think that's the correct assessment. He then makes the incorrect assessment then, okay, what I should do instead is go to Twitter where people will talk about me and I don't know, we'll figure out the money stuff on the back end. Maybe he doesn't need money and maybe that doesn't. I, I don't think that you have the influence that you think because people don't consume Twitter that way. They scroll through Twitter and watch videos on Twitter. And as for like the monetization thing, again, it might work as a niche monetization that you make money in the weird conservative ghetto. But I know anyone normal that is going to give Elon Musk their credit card duration. And shit. And I saw this tweet from Elon that was like, I will know that our, Crazy uh, what's the word, uh, encryption? I will know that our encryption works when someone comes in my office puts a gun to my head and says, Elon, can you read someone else's deeps? And I get on the keyboard and realize that I can't. I'm like, that's an insane thing to say. That is an insane thing to tweet. Like any, any anybody <laughs> who, who is king that they might try to get into other my DMs with a gun to their head is someone who I'm not giving my, any of my data or information to at all. So that's the business problem with it. I don't think that Tucker seems to realize how much of his audience was over the age of 65. 55 to 54 or whatever it is. Yeah. He was winning in the like coveted 18 to 45 demo. He is winning that slot, but like a lot of his viewers are too old to figure out how to become a subscriber to his Twitter show. I don't know if this is going to make Twitter go under. I got to say like Twitter has gotten markedly worse but it's like still enough the same that like I still use it. And listen, as I've gotten older, you know, I used to, Tim and I used to burn a smoke together in our 20s. I used to have a lot of vices. Now I just, my vices are fewer and Twitter's really one of them. And I'm like committed to this vice. I do not want to give it up. And I'm mad about how crappy they're making it, but I still don't think it kills it. Like too many of us is like, it is where we go to have the political conversations we want to have with the people we want to have them with. And until somebody provides an alternative that is basically exactly like Twitter that we all go to. And then how do you get people on there? Give them money, I guess. It's like the thought days of zero interest rates where you can be like, hey, I'll give everybody a 10 buck 
entry fee if you jump over to Sky. Like maybe that would do it. People would go somewhere for money, but they do it. I don't know the answer to that. Well, that's what Substack Notes is, right? I mean, Substack Notes is you you are we're gonna let you monetize your audience with newsletters, and so here's a social network for it. Blue Sky is banking on status. You guys, it's called Blue Sky. Yeah. It's not called Blue Ski. I, I don't think so. It's one word. I believe it's Blue Sky. Pretty sure it's Blue Sky. You think it's Blue Ski? You think it's Blusky? <laughs> I will tell you in my head, it is one word when written. I've only ever seen it written. You're the first people I've heard say it out loud. And Blue Ski. It's Blusky. Blusky. Blue Ski. Like a Marianne Blusky, who was oh. one of your teammates in your, your high school basketball team. Nice Polish family from central Pennsylvania. Like Bluey, the cartoon. Don't think so. Can I do one of accountability podcasting here? Again, we're only a few weeks in, but the ratings, we had a question on this podcast three weeks ago about whether we did. this was a the, the hamster situation or whether that Tucker had a unique audience. And we didn't really know. And some of it leaning towards the hamster with the pellet side of things. And it seems like he had a real audience. I mean, Craze on Friday beat Tucker, not in the demo, but in total viewers. So including the seniors who are just getting their pellet. All right. So do you think that there's something to be said there that connects back to our conversation from earlier about why Tulsi and RFK and we have a better chance in the primary than Nikki Haley? Like, There's a big group of people that don't want generic anymore. Uh, yeah, well, I was certainly wrong about that one. Pun accountability. All right. Guys, it's been a good show. Next week, by the way, we're doing this live at 3 p.m. We're going to be all be in the same place together. Oh, yeah, I know. I was upstairs. We were doing the studio. We, we were building the studio yesterday. Barry thinks it should be have pink lighting. It's going to be amazing. The next level on YouTube. Tim will be licking my face. It's going to be fantastic. I like that. I can't wait to get COVID again. It's been, you know, almost 10 months since I've had COVID. So uh, that'll be wonderful. Tune in. Come to the channel and you'll get it. And if you are in the New York area... You can still grab tickets to come see us on the 18th. And in the meantime, go over to thebulwark.com. Sign up for all the stuff. Get Charlie's fantastic newsletter. Uh, subscribe to his podcast. Hit the like button. Subscribe to this show. Give us five stars. I haven't checked the reviews in a week. I hope they're good. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.